been a long week for a lot of us. Um, and that's going to be kind of a, a focal point today. <clears throat> for those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. Uh, my wife Amanda's right here, and our daughters Evie and Isla are in the children's ministry. We've been attending Revelation Church for a little over three years. Uh, we were there for the first meeting in Zach and Joanna's house. And we've grown to love this family and been supported by it and honestly been spurred on in growth through it. About a year and a half ago, Zach asked me to speak on Matthew. And uh, those of you who know, know me know that I don't typically do a lot of public speaking, but I like to talk. Um, so I was nervous, but I figured this was a good growth opportunity, so I did it. Uh, afterwards, I told him I wasn't interested in doing it anymore. <laughs> to which he replied, we'll see. So here I am. I don't know, maybe he has a gift of prophecy. <laughs> um, let's just stop for a moment and, and pray again uh, for the word that we're about to receive. God, I thank you for your everlasting word that this, written that was, this letter that was written thousands of years ago still applies to us today. That your truths never fail, that your character never changes, and that you are always and constantly with us working for not just our, our personal good, but the, for the good of the church and for the redemption of creation. We pray that you would guide my words so that I communicate your truths and soften our hearts to receive it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, so if you haven't already, turn to Colossians 1, 9 through 14. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 1043. <clears throat> your Bible might have this section labeled, Prayer for Spiritual Growth. Late in the summer of 1998, I decided that for my sophomore year, I wanted to do a manly sport. And since I weighed about 120 pounds soaking wet, holding a 10-pound dumbbell, I didn't figure that football was probably a good choice. Uh, my dad actually was a state wrestling champ in high school, actually all the way through school. Um, up until fairly recently, I understand that he had records still weren't broken. Um, I thought, okay. It's got to be some genetic here. I could probably hold my own. I'm happy to say that I made the team, which actually just meant I signed up and there were no tryouts. <laughs> but after a few of the initial practices, it became painfully obvious that I was not the most skilled. I didn't have the most history in the sport, and I definitely wasn't the strongest. In fact, to be honest, I wasn't all that great. I also seemed to realize that after a few weeks, the coach had it out for me. Uh, every drill was followed by Taft, 10 more. Every conditioning session ended with doing two extra sets of push-ups or running extra sets of stairs. Finally, one day, I just broke. I asked, what is your problem with me? A little puzzled and a lot annoyed, he looked me in the eye and said, I thought you wanted to win. You've got a lot of room to grow. And I can also see you're good for it, so I'm not going to take it easy on you. If you want this, you can have it. But if you don't, you're going to have to quit. I remember being so furious. I couldn't do anything but say, fine, 
with my teeth clenched and walk away. And as I thought about it and I felt stuck in this impossible decision of to quit and be called a quitter or to be tortured, I just thought, long story short, I didn't choose to quit. In fact, I even wrestled the next year and I loved it. And while I never turned out to be a state champ or really win any medals, it did change the tra trajectory of my life in a way that I can't describe. And now I learned to embrace torture. Now, looking back, I see that my choices weren't actually quitting or pain. They were growth or stagnation. So now my wife and daughters would like to say and usually tell other people that I like to do hard things. That is not true. <laughs> that is not true. I don't necessarily like doing hard things more than anybody else. But what I would say is that I like the results of growth that comes through doing hard things more than I like the comfort of the current situation. And I think that that is one of the several facets that Paul is focusing on in this prayer through the Colossians. It's not the only one, but it's the one we're going to look through, the lens we're going to look through today. So the way I see it, this prayer involves three interwoven movements of growth, starting with equipping, then proving, and finally ends in reminding. Starting in verse 9, we see the request to be equipped. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Let's camp here for a minute. Think about that statement. He starts out saying that they are praying for him. We know that this letter was written by Timothy and Paul and several others. So that doesn't just mean Paul. That means a group of people are praying. Think a bit about the last week that, we, that we've just finished up. For some of us, it might have been pretty good. The weather is starting to get nicer. Thanks to daylight savings time, we have a little bit more daylight to enjoy, even though we're more tired. Maybe you came off of a win and feel hopeful about the next week. And amen. Praise God for that. Let's rejoice together in that. But maybe for some of us, it was just plain rough. Maybe there were moments where you thought, I can't do this right now. How am I going to make it through the day, let alone the week? And what is this even for? It might be so hard to sit still without succumbing to such anxiety-inducing despair. That your ears ring and you, your body feels numb. That you can't get your mind to stop and you can't sit still because that feeling just won't go away or allow you to do anything but feel overwhelmed. And you pray to God one more time for the strength to keep going. Now remember those times. Sit in that moment and think. Think about how wonderful it might have been to receive a letter, a handwritten letter from a trusted friend and mentor. Or better yet, one of your heroes but you're a little surprised because you know that he's also going through his own dark valley. And instead of complaining about his situation or criticizing the way you're handling yours, he lets you know that he's heard about what's going on with you. 
and about the good work that you're doing from a mutual friend, that he's heard about the good work that you're doing and that he's praying for you, that he's praying specifically for your good. And I'm not talking about some indifferent, half-hearted, cliche, oh, I'm praying for you kind of prayer. No. Instead, I'm talking about the prayers that he prays for you, that fervent, heartfelt, wrestling kind of prayers. The kind of prayers prayed by somebody who has a vested interest in your life and shares your vision. The kind that are filled with simultaneously joy and excitement, but they're motivated by urgent concern for your good and your well-being. And you know that although there's nothing that they can do to physically alleviate your struggles, it matters and it brings peace. You know that you're not fighting in vain. You know that you're not fighting alone in obscurity. This, this is the kind of prayer that Paul and the others are praying for the Colossians. He's not giving them false hope for the removal of their opposition, but instead he's praying for their growth in the midst of it and that they thrive. And I love the placement of this prayer. It comes right after the section where he talks about the thanksgiving he has for their faith and their love for the saints, that's what Levi talked about last week. And he says that they haven't stopped praying for them. So if you grasp that, they, they get good news, they give thanks, but they keep on praying. I don't know, it kind of reminds me of this scene in Shawshank Redemption. The main character, Andy Dufresne, wants to get funding to expand the library, so he writes a letter a week to the state senate asking for funding. And after six years... He doesn't just get money, but he gets boxes of books and is told to stop. And his immediate response is, next time, I'll write two letters a week. It's beautiful. Paul is not stopping it good enough. He's doubling down. So what are they praying for? That the church at Colossae would be filled with knowledge and his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And it becomes immediately clear that they're in need of something something that they don't possess, but also something they cannot gain on their own. Knowledge. Knowledge, not just any knowledge will do, but they're in need of divine knowledge. And since it's divine, it's not something they can get, but they must be filled with it. Two weeks ago, Pastor Zach talked about uh, one of the main challenges facing the church in Colossae the false teachings or knowledge from a human source. Some of these were good teachings, ways of thought that were supposed to be beneficial for society, and at least in their intention, but they really just came up short on any deliverance or transformation. Remember the historical debate, whether Greek Gnosticism or Jewish mysticism was at play and we really kind of encompassed it in the term of syncretism. It's really a buffet of individually chosen goodness that may even look similar to Christianity. But on the surface, or on the surface, but just as flesh and ultimately is a lifeless idolatry of self. After all, isn't that what the basis of sin really is? Attempting to meet our deepest needs by our own means? Now contrast that to Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He prays that they would be recipients of the knowledge of God's will by God alone. 
This is the knowledge of his will that is so great that they, we, don't have the capacity to comprehend it on our own. Instead, they need more than just the information, just the pure raw data of what his will is. Instead, they're in need of the knowledge along with the wisdom and spiritual understanding for its use. Again, that can only come from God. And the will that he's talking about here is not the same as when we ask, what is his will for me? Too often, we, I, get caught up asking, what is his will for my life? What should I do for my career? Where should I attend college? Or should I just go straight into the workforce? Who should I marry? What should I eat for lunch? What should I wear today? Where should I park? Can I get a parking spot? I'm not saying these things don't matter. I'm not saying that they're bad or that it's not even a good practice to ask him continually and bring him into every decision in our lives. In fact, I actually think it's a great practice. It keeps in the forefront of our minds his sovereignty and his provision for the children that he loves. But make no mistake, or, and make no mistake, God cares about every mundane detail of our lives. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about God's all-encompassing will. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25 through 33. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about the body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his life span by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers of the field, how they grow. They don't labor or spin or thre- they don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. So if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You have little faith. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need him. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. You catch that? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, or as Paul would say in Colossians 1.9, his will. This is the will that he is referring to. His will for the totality of the redemptive story of all creation, modeled by Jesus' life and completed in his death and resurrection, which is currently being worked out in process, actualized here on earth as it is in heaven through him, inviting us to partner in his work. I love the summary I've heard uh, fairly recently called the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. It's done, but it's being done. And a quick aside before I move on, I really want to make this clear. Like I said a second ago, God does care about every detail. See again in Matthew 31, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Not, it doesn't matter. Just don't worry. And in verse 33, he talks about providing for our needs. His main point here is to keep our hearts fixed on him. Okay, starting back into verse 10, we start to make the transition from equipping into the proving section. 
so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We're going to pause here for a second again. So why is it such a big deal that we are filled with knowledge and understanding? What is it that Paul knows is so important that he prays continually for the church in Colossae and really the church as a whole? It's right here in the beginning of verse 10. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is not saying act like a good person so that God will be happy with you to feed the hungry, to give to the poor, to care after orphans and widows in order to appear godly or even as a means of justification. No, this is a statement. This is not a statement on earning or even pretending to earn. This is an identity statement. We are his and we should walk in a way that proves whose we are and that pleases him. Think of it this way. Imagine you see a neighbor's house on fire. So you call 911. The operator picks up, you give her the information. She says, okay, help is on the way. And a few minutes later, fire engines arrive at your house and are at the house and 10 big burly guys in firefighting gear step out. They start grabbing equipment and heading toward the fire. But instead of axes and hoses, they're carrying gasoline and firewood and they just start chucking it right into the middle of the fire. Are they firefighters? No, they're not. They're pyros posing as firefighters. Yes, and I know what you're thinking. Aren't all firefighters pyros? Yes, but that's not the point. The point is, is that our walk should be congruent with our identity as the body of Christ. So what does that look like? I'm sure if we were all asked this question, each one of us would come up with a similar but slightly varied answer. So in order to provide clarity, Paul lists three necessary characteristics that we read here in the second half of verse 10 and the first part of 11. Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So bearing fruit, growing, and being strengthened. Let's sit with each one of these for just a a minute. Bearing fruit in every good work. So just like the firefighter example, how we appear to look isn't always a reliable judging in our, isn't always reliable in judging our faith. It's the products of what we do that signify our allegiance and who it's to. Talking to the false prophets in Matthew 7, 16, Jesus says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce good fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Or as Martin Luther would say, oh, this faith is a busy, living, active, powerful thing. It is impossible that it should not be ceaselessly doing that which is good. It does not even ask whether good should be done, but before the question can be asked, it has done them, and it is constantly engaged in doing them. So our faith, if rooted in Christ, cannot help but produce fruit through good works. It's not an earning, it's a production. Next, growing in the knowledge of God. This is the kind of knowledge that comes only through experiential and obedient, continual pursuit of his larger will. This is an understanding of his character and will, and is also the process that he works through to bring it about. It's not something that we can grasp. It's something that's given, not all at once, but something that he grows in us as we abide in him 
faithfully over the course of a lifetime, the way that he first intended for us to walk with him in the garden. And finally, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So this statement was not so much about being strong since that, was the idea, since that idea was important amongst all the false messages circulating in the area, but more importantly, it was where the strength comes from. The mystics relied on their own strength to obtain superior knowledge or spiritual experiences that made them feel superior, made them feel like they had the answer squared away and that they were better. And the church, on the other hand, needed to rely on God. Posture of humility. And this drew attention to the fact that true strength only comes from God. And if the Colossians were going to walk worthy, then counterfeit strength wouldn't be enough. They needed to be strength. They needed the strength that is given in all power according to his glorious might. All right. So we've listed the characteristics of a walk that is growing and bearing fruit. Next, the question is, what's the purpose? What's walking and growing useful for? Well, here it is. Finishing out verses 11 and 12. So that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. I'm going to pause here again. So that we might have great endurance and patience. This is demonstrated by joyfully giving thanks to the Father, not in the removal of our struggles, but in our struggles. Because we have been strengthened by a faithful God, we need endurance because the road is hard. And often the hard road lasts longer than our natural ability to persevere, pushing us far beyond our comfort zones. If it was doable, our strength in our own strength and endurance, God wouldn't get the glory. Patience, because he doesn't want us to just survive the long, hard road and come out on the other side jaded and bitter and broken. No, he wants us to mature and thrive in him through our dependence on him in our struggles because that ultimately brings him glory. That shows that he's a faithful and good, loving father. You don't just thrive or mature if you're impatient. If you're always asking, are we there yet? You'll miss the growth along the way. But if we have the endurance and the patience that he gives us and we trust him in the process, then joyfully giving thanks isn't something that we force, but instead it's the result that overflows from a heart of spiritual understanding and growth. And this is why James in his book can say, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. He says, consider it great joy. I know that that has been brought up before, but I legitimately believe that James considers it great joy, even in the pain. So as Paul wraps up the prayer, he moves from talking about what the Colossians need for growth and how they are to live it out to reminding them of what they've already received and more importantly, who they've received it from. Back in verse 12, the Father who has enabled you to share in this inheritance of the saints in the light. Just in case they weren't sure, Paul spells it out loud and clear. He's reminding the Colossians that the Father that he's praying to is the very same one who enabled them to share in the inheritance of this, in the saints' inheritance in the light. And this is significant for two reasons. First, 
This statement speaks to both Jewish and non-Jewish Christians in the church at Colossae, proclaiming that they are now both recipients in the same family and inheritance. And second, here's that word saints again. Remember two weeks ago, Zach talked about how it was closely tied to the word holy ones. It had some other implications as well. So Paul's word choice here is likely trying to evoke imagery of the body of believers unified and taking part, not just in Israel's earthly inheritance, but in the assembly of the Holy One in God's kingdom. So if that wasn't enough, in the last two verses, he drives the point home while simultaneously reorienting the Colossians' focus from earthly wisdom back to the Father. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This intends to move the reader's focus from our needs and responsibilities to God's abundant sufficiency. The doctrine pushed by the Jewish mystics of the time and in the region was more about the elevation of one's own spiritual self. So Paul's ideas here are God-centered. They are what Bible scholar Tim Mackey would call hyperlinks back to the language of the Old Testament. Ideas like rescue, redemption, and inheritance. Here in Exodus 15, 11, and 13, or 11 through 13, we read, Lord, who is among you? Who like you is a, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You have stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Rescue. With your faithful love, you will lead the people. You have redeemed redemption. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Inheritance, being guided to his holy dwelling. These ideas found here would echo back to Israel's rescue out of Egypt and their reconfirmation as God's set-apart people. They are meant to draw attention back to the demonstration of God's sovereignty and how he called them as his possession for his own glory by his good pleasure. Let's overlay the salvation work of Christ on this lens as well. He didn't just die for me but he died for us to reconcile all humanity and creation back to its creator, to make what was broken whole again. This was the redemption, the forgiveness of sins that he was referring to at the end of verse 14. This reminder of God's past salvation and Jesus' completion of God's wider salvation plan makes it clear that the central point of salvation is God's glory alone. This would have been in direct opposition to the narrative of self-perfection that the mystics would have been attempting to persuade these early Christians of. It instead re-centralizes God as the meaning, the means, and the reason for the life and work that they do and that we are all doing and are called to. So as we wrap up, I hope it's clear that Paul's pattern for prayer is not so much completion, that maturity will be attained at the end, but is more a wash, rinse, and repeat process. As we know, sanctification often is. Paul prays for our equipping so that as a natural consequence, we prove. And in doing these, we are reminded 
of the centrality of God and his glory as the means and the reason for our salvation and the great commission to live and speak the gospel. As we're reminded of these facts, we mature in faith, which serves to equip us to further prove our walk worthy of the Lord and then see his faithful redemption at work again. And so on and so on and so on in a beautiful upward spiral of growth. Just like a plant needs leaves to undergo photosynthesis so that it can have enough energy to produce more leaves, to produce more energy, to produce more leaves, thus resulting in the overall growth of the plant and eventual production of fruit, we need to be equipped to walk out and to be reminded of his will and good works of God the Father through his son Jesus. And this is done in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there it is. This is our prayer for growth. It was meant for the Colossians thousands of years ago, and it still applies for us today. Um, we, I don't know if we, yeah, we do. Okay. So we're going to take Q&R, and anything I don't know, I'm going to defer to Zach. <laughs> uh, would it show up? Are they just being nice to me? Okay. You might get emails. <laughs> okay. Anybody want to ask questions out loud? Okay. Well, if you have anything, you can again email Zach. Come up to him. Ask him. Ask me. <laughs> Here in this next few minutes, though, the band is going to come up and play, and I would like to invite you to come up and take communion. And as you take the elements back to your seat, I want to encourage you to spend a few moments being reminded of God's faithfulness. And if you're brave, ask for his equipping. As always, the prayer rugs are available for anyone who wants to change posture as you worship. Let's finish in prayer. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.